It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport. We're back and with you throughout the 2018 Vuelta. I'm Bradley Wiggins. I'm Tony Gibb. And I'm Adam Green. And coming up today, we're previewing the next few weeks racing, looking at the GC favourites in a very open field, and asking what makes the Vuelta so special. Nice to see you again, Brad. Yeah, good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, we've got a new member of the team. Tony, welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for being with us. Brad, we have to talk about the new picture for the vodcast you can see behind yeah, us. It's uh, a cracker, isn't it? That's a great shot of you there. Yeah. I don't know where they found it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It doesn't even look like me. Brooding and slightly menacing. Yeah. The hair's looking superb. On point. I'm, I'm just jealous of the hair. Uh, anyway, uh, before we talk about Saturday and Sunday stages, uh, the Volta has really come to life in the last 10 years, hasn't it? Question mark. I don't know. I think as I think as cyclists, we've always been aware of the Vuelta. Obviously, it's it's changed since the, about twenty years ago. It always used to be in April, and traditionally, it was always before the Giro d'Italia. They moved it nineteen ninety five to September to try and give more presence to the end of the season, and also a bit of a pathway to the World Championships, which were moved to October. So I think. You know, in modern day, people will always remember it being in September, and obviously the weather's better in Spain in September, but. I, don't, I think a lot of people are unaware that it's going on, much like much of our listenership that would be, have been tuning in during the Tour de France in July. And obviously everyone's aware of the Tour de France and its status. I don't think anyone will really be, a, a, a lot of people won't be aware that the, actually the Tour of Spain is now taking place because it just doesn't have that same impact and people aren't always aware of it. But within cycling circles, I think a lot of people are aware of it. A lot of people watch it and a lot of people are intrigued by it, especially as a build-up to the World Championships. It gives guys an opportunity that have maybe had a bit of misfortune in the Tour de France, an opportunity to come back and have another go at the Vuelta. And then the guys that we saw back in May in the Giro, Simon Yates of this world, who've now had a bit of a break in July and got back training. This is, again, their time to now come back and, and have a second part of their season. So there's a real mixed bag of, of riders in this one. And I think that always makes for special racing and maybe a bit up and down racing, as we saw today. How do you see it, Tony? Is it, is it a race that people love, do you think? Uh, from a rider's point of view, probably not. I think there's some riders that have maybe had their arm forced up their back a little bit to come and do the race because they may be leaving a team. There's some riders that, as Brad said, haven't had a result and need a big result to try and get a contract for next year. And then there's other riders who are going to a different team for next year, already signed their contract. And that's where you see some odd politics maybe coming into play within the race because you're thinking he's in a break with him. Why is he helping him so much? And, and things like that. So it's an intriguing race from that side of things. I think some of the scenery that we see is a stunning 
be desolate. So there's, there's you know, quite mm. a, quite a difference between the tour. You know, there's there's very rarely sections of road on the tour where there aren't people at the side of the road. With the Vuelta, there's very rarely sections where there are a lot of people at the side of the road. So it's it's a much different race to the tour and to the Giro, but it does provide because of all of the different uh, things that are in the mix, it does provide great racing at the end of the year. Time gaps compared with the Tour de France can be quite different yeah. uh, on the podium from the Vuelta to the Tour. It is quite an unpredictable race. Well, it's brutal. It? I mean, it, we saw um, we saw today's stage. I mean, already the time gaps now on the GC, they've got three weeks left of racing and some guys are out of it. Someone like Richie Port of his quality. I mean, we heard he's got... Stomach problems, you know, in our world, that's the two bob bits. And he's, you know, he's, but that doesn't mean he's, you know, 13 minutes in a, in a Vuelta sounds a lot of time. In the Tour de France, he'd be out of it now, you know, like with Chris Froome with his minute and a half loss in the early stages of the Tour. But in the third week when everyone's tired and the Valverdes are dropping away because they've got the Tour in their legs, someone like Richie Port of his quality could bring back five, six, seven minutes easy on a stage. And over a succession of three days on tough stages, he wouldn't put it past him to take those 13 minutes back. It's a big ask, but we saw Chris Froome do it at the at the Giro early this year. So it's a strange race, as Tony said, the Vuelta. I mean, I spoke to Steve Cummins not so long ago. He was gutted at not making the tour team. This is his opportunity now to get something out of the season. And, you know, he's got a year left on his contract at Dimension Data and thinking long-term about re-signing. As Tony said, you know, this is a real shot window for a lot of riders and, and, and it, it, it really makes for good racing. It can be a race of, of redemption, can't it? And as you said before, some people being sent there almost as punishment, others looking for new contracts. So there's a lot to add into the mix. Yeah, there's so much going on. And, uh, you know, as Brad will tell you better than anyone, there's a lot of business that goes on, firstly at the Tour de France and then at the Vuelta later on in the year when riders are scrabbling around for contracts. So it really is one of those races where there's just so much going on, not just on the, uh, you know, from the start to the finish. There's all the other stuff that you throw into the mix. But with all that, it's a very familiar face at the front of affairs again today in Alessandro Vever. We were trying to work out his age earlier. I know his official age is 38, <laughs> but I, I like to think of him more as 42 because he just seems to have been around forever. Uh, going back to riding the Vuelta because of maybe earlier in the season, things not going quite to plan. Uh, Brad, you came third in mm. 2011. You crashed in the Tour that year. Obviously, you weren't expecting to ride the Vuelta. How do you then prepare? How do you mentally prepare for something like that? Well, I think, obviously, everyone's different, but I think the beauty of the Vuelta is you've always got that kind of backup plan. You crash out the Tour, you know, you've you've got five, six weeks to get yourself right, as as in my case. You think, well, straight away, my mind turned to the Vuelta as, as as a way to end the season and go into the winter with better condition and so give you better condition into the next season. So a lot of people look at the Vuelta like that. Someone like Richie, obviously, crashed out after just a week in the Tour. So I'm sure straight away the team would have been thinking we've probably got seven weeks now to get you right for the Vuelta. Um, so, but for the illness, he's probably looking forward to that and you know trying to do something here. But um, it is, it, as I say, it gives an opportunity to a lot of guys here now. I think, there's, as Tony said, there'll be guys that are still chasing a contract. We've got teams that have just ended, new teams that are just starting. So there's still a bit of a shop window going on. A few people moving around teams and there'll be a few spare places and people will want to show that into this welter and also you know i think we've got a very hilly world championships this year which we haven't had for a long time so 
a lot of guys will be using this as preparation for those world championships in Innsbruck and looking to someone like Steve Cummins, you know, lost 13 minutes today. He will never look at doing anything in this world to GC wise. He's in a, he's in a team where they won't have huge aspirations for the GC. He'll look for a stage win along the way, but I know he'll have one eye on the world championships in Innsbruck because Steve is a one day racer as he is on a course like that. You wouldn't put him past him doing something that day. So I know that there'll be a lot of riders like that, that will be using this race with one eye on the world's. It's a really exciting mix, I think, as a cycling fan. Just to, you know, there's people who really want to ride. They, the people have been made to go there. Also, the race that kind of introduced us to Chris Froome, isn't it, Tony? Yeah, and I think it's the first time since 2009 or way back when when we didn't have either Chris Froome or Alberto Contador on the start line. So it's a really open race as well. And I think from what we've seen today, I know Brad said that Richie Port, 13 and a half minutes down, um, you know, could bring that back. I think. That's a big ask, as Brad said. But now, straight away, we're looking at guys that haven't won Grand Tours before. Uh, I just looked, and you've got to go down to 100th place, and they're already outside five minutes, which on day one yeah, of massive. Grand Tour, you, you know, we've seen Tours in the past one by eight seconds. We've got guys that are, you know, half an hour down almost mm. on, on day two. So there's a, there's a hell of a lot going on. Uh, it's going to be a very exciting race. Um, and you just don't know where the winner's going to come from. Well, let's look back on the first two stages. On Saturday, for the second year running Aussie time trial champion, Rowan Dennis ended the first stage in the red jersey. He beat Sky's Mikel Kwiatkowski over the eight-kilometre TT by six seconds. Then on Sunday, an exciting uphill finish at Caminito del Rey was won by Valverde with Kwiatkowski again in second, although he did take uh, the red jersey. And it's the pole here who's going to take this one by the looks of things. He heads in in front of Valverde, who can mug him at the very last. Valverde, I think, has uh, got a great idea, and it's a, it's a late push by the man. Oh, and here he comes, dagger between his teeth. Is he going to stick it between the ribs of Kwiatkowski? He does exactly that. Brilliant work here. Valverde takes it. Kwiatkowski goes into the red jersey. Nonetheless, wow, what about that for a run for home? A day of triumph and trauma spread all across the hills here. What a day of full-on racing at La Vuelta. So uh, a nice, easy, flat stage on day two. It was definitely not, was it? No. And I think that's the nature of the Vuelta. It's, It's straight in there. You know, we don't have this week of kind of seeing the sprinters through before the mountains and the first selections. That's the GC right there, that first selection. And, you know, it won't change a hell of a lot over the next three weeks. That's probably the guys that are going to be there in Madrid will probably be the ones that were there today. We mentioned Valverde a moment ago. Tenth stage that he's won at the Vuelta. That's clearly why he keeps winning, isn't he? He just loves being there. I think he just he just loves riding his bike. I mean, he just and I think because of he because he races all year round and he very rarely has a, an off season. He's good from February right through to the World Championships. I think that mentality of riding your bike all the time helps him at the age he's at because he doesn't have long layoffs in the off season. Have to build right up again to mm-hmm. to the level he needs to be at. He just he's, he's got a really good grounding and a good underpinning foundation of base fitness all year round, and I think that's really helped him. I mean, I know when he when he was banned, was it six seven years ago? He got that ban, two year ban. He was still doing forty fifty thousand kilometers a year on training camps of all the guys. Just and he came straight back in and started winning again after two years off. So he's a quite a special rider in that sense, in that he's able to do that mentally. Um, Doesn't train much, does he? He likes to race just race as much as possible, and that keeps you sharp. And if you can do that and make sure you rest so you don't get fatigued, Mm. that's so much better than training, the monotony of training hour after hour. 
do you look back or do you almost think, oh, I, I would have liked to, to train or ride like that in your careers? Uh, I think it's quite difficult. I think it takes a certain mentality. Um, obviously, riding two Grand Tours a year, as he does, helps as well because around that, as Tony said, you know, you kill two or three months of the year. You don't have to do a lot of else training around those kind of periods. So that certainly helps. Um, don't forget Movistar as well don't have training camps. No. They're the only pro team that don't have a training camp. You have one meeting before December to get measured up for your kit and your bike. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that's a complete change from every other team. Yeah. The only thing on track racing that's comparable to that is probably the six days where you're on a circuit and you're just going from race to race. You very rarely train in between. And you find yourself getting just into the groove of the racing as the winter goes on. And you don't do very little training around it. Um, there's not as many these days as there used to be. But that that kind of constant... Your racing is your training, and and some some people find that easier to do than than going out because of the enjoyments in it. The time passes quicker, and if you can get to a stage where you're doing grand tours for for fun, if you can do that, <laughs> you know, uh, as Valverde seems to do, it, it certainly makes it a lot easier around the racing. And then your day off with the six days is your Monday when you're traveling to to, to the, the next one. one. You're in the car, you know, and you you're in a box, aren't you? You're absolutely exhausted. Yeah. That must be a, a special environment in its own right, just being in your own world. I think it's like any walk of life, any any workplace where you're you get into a role of work and you just it becomes kind of uh, there's a monotony to it, and one day turns into the next, and before you know it, three or four days have passed, and the days off are almost quite disruptive in many ways, mm. as we talk about rest days on the Tour de France and stuff, and so I think. Anything like that, really, it becomes you just become more productive at work. And that when you're racing, you're getting the work done, training-wise, without really thinking about it. Which is why a lot of these guys use it as preparation for the World Championships because you're just being dragged along by this peloton. You'll go up a climb. You've no choice but to work hard up this climb, otherwise you'll get dropped. Now to do that in training, to sit and look at your box and try and average 450 watts for 20 minutes to get that effort done, get over the top, fill your water bottles up in a small cafe before you get going again, or to even go out in the rain, you know, if you it's know, throwing so, it down at home, you might sit indoors. And I think when you go to the Vuelta, you're there. You do, all you have to do is think is sleep, eat, and ride your bike. And and some cases that's a lot easier for people to do than being at home, especially if they've got families or kids to look after or just daily disruptive things that get in the way of your training. You've got nothing else to think about for three weeks and you can get all that work done and then come home and have the time off. So I think that's why a lot of people enjoy using these historically for the World Championships. Just going back to Valverde quickly, he's been with the same team, albeit under different names, since 2005. Yeah. That's, you know, that's unheard of, but also it shows you how comfortable and settled he is there. And if you've got that in your life and you're happy and you're comfortable and you're settled, everything else falls into place. I might be wrong, but I think his first Walter was about 2001, 2002 with Kelme. Two, 2002, 2002. Yeah. so 16, 17 years ago. I mean, it's quite a career he's had. Absolutely. To still be there today winning. I mean, most of these guys, some of these guys in the race, what, 19, 20 years of age? Would have been two or three years of age when he rode his first Walter. <laughs> Um, so it just shows you the quality of him really uh, so we'll be back to preview the GC battle uh, right after this Eurosport player is the only place to watch every minute of the Vuelta live and on demand follow every stage of this year's final Grand Tour with an uninterrupted ad free stream the very best expert analysis and commentary and catch up on all the best action available on demand visit eurosportplayer.com now to sign up 
So a very high quality field has landed in Spain, many with a point to prove. There's so many big names in the list. Former winner Nibali is four minutes down already as he comes back from a broken vertebrae. Uh, Barry's Yates twins, Simon and Adam, who will race together in a major tour for only the third time, which will be fun for the commentators. Simon Yates is Mitchelton Scott's leader and if he wins the Vuelta, it will be the first time the same nation holds all Grand Tours with different riders. Uh, let, let's talk about Simon Yates. Can he learn from the Giro experience, not go out too hard in the first week? Well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure he's learned a lot from that Giro. I mean, he, he it was, you know, it was punishing for him, really, especially in that third week. But he's already lost a bit of time today, so I'm kind of questioning and wondering whether he's quite at that form he was early in the year. You know, tr- he was particularly in particularly good form in, in May. I don't think we've ever seen him in that kind of form. And it's whether he can repeat that two times in a year, I think, especially at that young age. So remains to be seen. There's time to get into this race. Um, but, you know, the early signs are not great for Simon as he, he normally comes out the blocks, you know, firing like a greyhound. So I think it's um, it remains to be seen, but it, it's not over for him. I think there's certainly a top 10 performance in him. There might be stage wins in him. Uh, I don't know how Adam is after the tour. So, you know, it, we have to see. We have to see how the race pans out. But... Again, as we said, a start like they've had the first two or three days of this race. There's, there's, you know, there's no time to ride yourself in. It's, it's straight in, and it's going to show any weakness straight away. Um, but there is time to claw that back. How do you see it going, Tony? For them? Well, looking at Adam Yates, he lost another eight seconds today um, after what he lost in the in the prologue, which you know puts him. I wouldn't say out of contention because, as Brad said, you can bring back a, a whole lot of time gaps. But you know, it's it's you wouldn't have expected him to lose eight seconds mm. today. If he wants to be there overall, he needs to be up the front. He needs to be fighting. He needs to be showing himself as a as a overall contender. And you know, twenty nine second loss in the in the time trial. Um, you've got to look at it and say every day you're losing eight seconds, 29 seconds, whatever it is, it all adds up and all of a sudden you find mm. yourself five minutes down. And we said, you know, he's only young. He's 26. It's not that he's not, they're not that young anymore. They're, they're getting to that stage mm. where they're going to have to step up and, and really deliver. You know, what's, what's Garrett, 30? 30, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so they're getting to that age where you can't say they're young anymore. They are going to have to start bringing it home. There's no time to get into it and just kind of feel things out. Of the the heat is an issue in the world to like yeah. no other race. Um, you know the gyro, the Giro is a lot more is a lot cooler. You have cooler conditions, rain, everything else to contend with. And Valverde's took the you know the, the um, jump on them all in the sense that you know he thrives in those conditions and and. Anyone's weaknesses at this stage, at the early stage of the Volta, you know, they're going to, ca- you know, capitalise on really, and it's whether they can ever claw that back on them again over the next three weeks. I mean, Valverde looks to me if he started that well, you know, that that I I, I have to put him down as one of the favourites now going into the next three weeks because it's very rare we see him like that these days. You know, he's always there or thereabouts, but to be right on it on a, on a finish as tough as that shows he's, he's you know he's probably ridden himself through that Tour de France and you know saw him really struggling at times in the tour this year and um you know that that could be just that that icing on the cake that he needed to come into this world in top form so and obviously I talk about splitting the leadership don't they uh, between Quintana they do, and yeah. have we seen today that actually one of them is is much stronger than the other I think at the tour we saw that the, the triple threat that they put together at the tour didn't work for them. So they've gone for the the double pronged attack uh, in the Vuelta, and 
Quintana, you know, he's great and he's been up there in the in the tours and he's won the Vuelta mm. before. Um, he's got to step up as well, I think. He's he's know. inconsistent, isn't he? With yeah. Him. We never really know where he's going to be at. I mean, we saw him in the tour win that stage and then obviously he crashed and lost time after that. But he'd lost time before that on Alpe d'Huez when he'd attacked and then got dropped. So you just never know with Quintana where he's... And he, he's never... I've never seen him... Aggressive. Quite in the same form as when he won the Giro the first time. Yeah. And do you watch him and do you think, are you really committed to this attack? You watch him a lot of the time and think, you're holding back here. Don't know. And obviously, we don't know what's going on in the earpieces with the radio, with the team cars, specifically on Alpe d'Huez there, where it looked in days after that Alpe d'Huez stage that he was a told to attack just to try and upset Sky a little bit and maybe you know force someone else to attack and... So that was that came from the three-pronged attack. Obviously, they've got Valverde now, who's won a stage. They don't have Lander at the race. Movistar seem to work well together, whoever they decide to go with. Um, you know, everyone from the outside, it always seems like everyone in that team really gets mm, on, and whoever yeah. they choose, they go with. They've got good relationships. You know, they always start races together. I think if there were any problems or leadership battles, they may all choose a Grand Tour each. But I think that shows that they've got a real good unity within that team mm. because they always start the races together. And that allows them to see how it plays out and who who's the strongest. So I think it can work in their favour. The Vuelta is their stomping ground. They've got a great history with the Vuelta and certainly winning the race. So Home race, isn't it, to all yeah, intents and I mean, purposes? It, it, it's their number one race for the year. This is where they're... This is their bread and butter, you know, so... Other names to mention, uh, Thibaut Pinot, has he got the legs, for instance? Stefan Kreisweig, fifth in the Tour. Yeah, again, these are all the sort of unknowns, uncertainties, you know. As I said, when we when we go back to the Giro, when we get to January, February time, we always know who's going to go for the Giro, so that we know who's targeting the Giro for the win. We know who's targeting the Tour for the win. When we get to the Vuelta, it's all a bit of a mishmash of people and Kreisweig's riding, but, you know, as Tony said earlier, has he been forced to ride for the sponsors? Is he here to try and do something? Is he just going to see how it pans out after the tour? A lot of people, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Thibaut Pinot, we've not heard anything from him since his, his explosion in the Giro. Yeah. You know, where's he at now? Is he, you know, is he re-signed with Francis de Jure next year? I don't know. It's been quite quiet on those. I've never seen anything about him. So all these kind of uncertainties, really, we just don't know. And all we've got to go on at this stage is what happened today. And, and it looks like, uh, Kwiatowski and Valverde are the ones at the moment that, are, that have lit it up. Well, Pino only lost three seconds today and he has actually just re-upped with yeah. Palmer for another two, uh, three years. So that's promising. I mean, so he's signed yeah. until the end of 2020. So he's got a bit of stability. Yeah. But again, another one who's, you know, supposed to be a shining light and supposed to deliver the result. Yeah. And how many times has he... I mean, all right, there's only three Grand Tours a year and so you can yeah. only have three winners, so we might be being a little bit unfair. <laughs> um, it's not that easy, obviously. No, no. But we do see riders like that historically that kind of, this is their year, this is it, and every year gets part, and every year they get a year older and... Vandenbroek, Jürgen Vandenbroek was a prime example. Third, fourth, fifth, third, fourth, Christophe fifth. Christoph Moreau. Before you know it, they've retired yeah. and... So, um, you know, at some point someone's got to step up and which make, we keep coming back to Valverde, makes his ride today even more impressive because he's always there. Yet we, we, you know, kind of somehow no one ever really talks about him because he's just, he's just so familiar to us. Uh, let's talk about Team Sky uh, because in their team, there's no big GC hope for once and they, they probably won't control the race at this time as we're perhaps used to them doing. Uh, do you fancy David De La Cruz or Michael Kwiatkowski to, to do well at the Vuelta? Looking at today's stage, I'd 
couldn't disagree with you more in terms of them controlling the race. I mean, they, they set it up. They sat on the front when they didn't have to. They didn't have the jersey. They set themselves up right behind BMC until BMC went horribly wrong. I think they're, for me personally, they're going all in for Kierkowski in this one. And having seen him firsthand at the Tour of Poland and how he rode there, um, I think he went exceptionally well there without the team support 100%. And I think they're they're investing everything mm. in him for this one. Yeah, and I saw a little interview with Dave Brailsford on the Champs Elysees with Jonathan Edwards at the end of the tour. And just getting towards the end of the interview, Dave said to them, um, you know, about who could be the next rider that could win a Grand Tour out of this system. And he said, Kwiatkowski, keep your eyes open for him. He's the next one. You know, kind of. And I reckon that this race will for them will be a, a sort of testing ground to see how far he could go. You know, it's an ideal opportunity. They don't have Chris Froome there. They don't have Geraint there. So this is, you know, got a young team. There's no pressure on him. You know, obviously had a, a big tour in the work he was doing there in the mountains. He was really impressive. Coming straight off that winning Poland the way he did. And now is an opportunity to just see how far you can do, see how far you can climb the mountains with these guys. Uh, you know, f- this this will be a project for a year or two's time. So I think this is going to be a testing ground for him and they're really going to have a a good go without too much pressure and, and too much kind of, ex, you know, external pressure, really, that he's the favourite or whatever. It's an opportunity. Very rarely does Sky go into a Grand Tour without an out-and-out favourite that can win the race, or that's the plan anyway. So I think this is an ideal opportunity for them to, to try something with with Kriatowski and see how far they can get into the race. And if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong, because he's had you a know. tough season already, but yeah. wouldn't put it past him to get on the podium. Anyone else in Team Sky that you, you've got your eye on? Well, I think just Teo because obviously he's a young, you know, energetic rider. He's got huge talent. People have been speaking about him for years. He's had a great season with Sky. You know, he does the job for the team. He's always on the front riding. And I just think he loves Spain. I think the Spanish roads suit him, the climbs, the terrain. And it's his first Grand Tour, and I think he's going to enjoy every moment of it. Um, but I think he'll shine as the race goes on. It'll be really interesting to see how he is in that third week on some of them tough finishes. So, yeah, look out for Teo. What's I can good... never pronounce his second name. I always call it Teo van den Garda. Gagan Hart. Gagan Hart. Gagen Hart. Yeah. So there you go. What's a good target for him, do you both think? It's a difficult one because, obviously, we see our team's guys set themselves up. They have one target and one target alone. They, they don't say, well, you can target this stage, you can target the other stage. But then having said that, they might be going into this one, as you said, a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, I, I think a good target for him, if it was me, a good target for him is to get round. If, if he gets round, does his job, sits on the front when he needs to, great. Is there an opportunity for him to get a stage? If it comes off of Kierkowski yeah. in the first 10 days, probably not. I think by nature of the terrain, it will happen organically for him. And we won't be able to pick that day or say when it's going to be. Um, I remember a day similar that that happened to Grind, and that was back in about 2015 Tour de France, where it was a stage on La Plagne, I think it was, or one of the Luzardi Den, one of those climbs. Um, and he was riding for, for, for Chris Froome, and he just was, everyone expected him to peel off, and he didn't. And he got to about 2K to go, 1.5K to go. There was five guys left in the group, and it was like, God, this guy could win the Tour de France one day. And he was doing that job that day for Chris Froome. So Teo will have a day like that at some point during the Vuelta where he's riding for Kwiatowski and he'll decimate the group. And in by, by nature of doing that, he might get pipped for the stage, but he'll sort of finish third or fourth. Well, we see Wout Powers do it all the time. Um, you know, on the big, uh, the big steep climb in the Giro this year that Chris Froome won, 
the Zonkalan, you know, Wout Powell's only lost a minute that day and we saw how, how much he'd ridden all day. And, and Teo will do a ride like that that will probably go unnoticed amongst a lot of people. But the job he would have done on the climb, you know, it will just so that will just happen organically for him. I think that will be success for him a day like that. And we always say, don't we, you know, there's so many riders in Team Sky that could themselves yeah. step up and be Grand Tour riders, uh, Grand Tour winners. You know, don't forget the young lad Sivakov, who turned pro with them uh, this year. He he was up there in the Tour de Lavignere last yeah. year. He's won three stages in uh, in the Ronde Isard, which is a very hard race. So the the riches of talent that they've got in that team is just unbelievable. Mm. All the young riders that they find and bring through. We've spoken about several British riders over the last few minutes. Tour of Britain starts next Sunday. They've had an almighty boost with Froome and Thomas yeah. joining the race. That's that's huge for the Tour of Britain, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that's the stature that the Tour of Britain has got to now. I mean, it's a huge race. I mean, and, and a lot of people are choosing that as preparation for the World Championships over the Volta, as we spoke about earlier, that that has been the pathway the last few years as a, as a pathway to the World Championships. But some people see it as too hard as well, that it's too challenging, it's too tough, particularly if you're a sprinter. Um, and the Tour of Britain is just a nice, it's a week-long bit more recovery either side of it if you're heading to this but it's got a bit of everything in it as well it's got a time trial flat stages tough little climbs and so but obviously chris and 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 Geraint that are riding i mean that's just it's their lap of honor and it's, it's a chance for the country to come and celebrate these two that have had a, an incredible season won both grand tours this year and and obviously Geraint doing what he's did, done coming from wales and the impact it's had on young kids in cardiff getting on their bikes and that i just think it's they needed to come back really and ride it and it and i think it's what British cycling needs. It needs its superstars to come back and ride. So It's, it's not going to be an easy lap of honour for them. No, you know, it's not. it never is. There's it some hard is. bike yeah. riders there that want to do a good, you know, have a good result. You've got Rodlich riding. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be a hard, hard race. Mm. But he'll get a lot of love, won't he? You do. And every hotel you go to, someone wants to buy you a drink and that gets hard as well. <laughs> you're in a couple of pints every night because you're not, you know, you're not there to win it or whatever. So it is tough. It gets tough. That mental discipline at the bar, is that what's called for? <laughs> well, you've for? got to try and get in the hotel and through the lobby without anyone buying you a drink. So. <laughs> you struggled with that a few times, didn't did. you? I always struggled with that. that. Is My biggest a, downfall. When a sprint is required. That, yeah. yeah. So, uh, right, good we'll lead be, out, man. <laughs> yes, I want to help you to your room. Uh, we'll be back with a preview of this week's route and more after this. Great teams wear great kit. Fuel your passion for the latest cycling gear at the Eurosport shop with thousands of products and discounts on leading brands, including Pearl Izumi, POC and Endura. Subscribe to Eurosportshop.com now and get an additional 10% off your first order. Now, talking of Geraint Thomas, he said that wearing a helmet on a bike should be compulsory. Have you seen those comments? What, what do you yeah, make of it? I saw it on the front of the newspaper this morning. I uh, I, I feel a bit sorry for him, really, because I don't know what his views are. Like, uh, Geraint just concert, has been concentrating on what he's been trying to do, you know, win the Tour de France. The last month he was occupied with that, and all of a sudden he comes back from the Tour de France and everyone wants to know what he thinks about certain topics. And, you know, I, I don't know what capacity it was asked him, but I'm sure it was just like, what do you think about helmets? And, and you know, just to maybe appease people who have no strong views on it or anything probably thought saying yeah they should be made legal you know but it's caused just as much uproar by saying that as to saying I don't think you should have to wear a helmet which would have probably just been equal front page news so it's one of them things if you haven't got a strong opinion on it either way he's the Tour de France winner now and everyone wants to know his view on certain things like he's some sort of messiah 
And that, that's part of the, you know, we spoke about it in the last podcast at the Tour de France, you know, how's his life going to change now? And I said, you know, certain things, but this is one of them is now that you're supposed to have the answers to all these questions and be, you know, someone like Chris Borden was far more educated, far more educated, but far more in a position to, to understand all the detail around a question like that and, and the impact of things. But, you know, as the Tour de France winner, Geraint's now sort of in a position where he's, he's you know, kind of people expect him to ask those, you know, answer those questions. But it was a, it was one question in an hour long interview. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think we all agree wearing a helmet when you're on a bike is going to stop you from getting injured if you fall off. No, it's not going to stop you from getting injured if it's a massive crash. Mm. No, you shouldn't think that if someone's got a helmet on in the same way they got a high-vis jacket on, you can, you know, aim for them and it doesn't matter if you knock them off. But I think any right-minded person would say wearing a helmet when you're on a bike is at some point going to stop mm. you when you fall off. That's why when we're racing, you have to wear them when you're racing. Yeah, I mean, I um, think it should be a choice still. Obviously, you know, people should have a choice, but I mean... You don't want to insist that your four-year-old's got to wear a helmet when he's riding around the park. No, but at the same time, I don't know why you wouldn't. You know, it's certainly not going to... Yes, yeah, quite. I think, I think there is that. You know, there, there is a responsibility to, to kids. I think as you become an adult, you then maybe you should have your decision if you want to take that decision for yourself. But I think there are other things in terms of road safety and safety towards cyclists that maybe should be implemented a bit more before the helmet becomes compulsory. I think there's some bigger fundamental issues that maybe need sorting out before. But as Brad says, you know, you, you can find someone that's going to be offended by absolutely anything, anything you say yeah. these days. Yeah, it's pretty... and, it, and it highlights, I suppose, as you said, that G is, is, now, yeah. is now big news. Now, he's probably sat there today thinking... What happened there? I didn't even know what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, just that's kind of, but that's it now. Everyone, you know, like, it's front page news. It's a Tour de France winner. You and must have the answers, G. <laughs> yeah. What do and you think about Brexit? <laughs> you know, Tony, maybe we've answered that, but Tony, what are the other things that people might be offended by? I'm not getting into that one. <laughs> Why didn't you ask him that one? He's, he can upset everyone without even thinking about it. I'm not getting into that one. I think it's Arsenal. I think, you know, people are going to be upset about Arsenal. <laughs> we agreed on that are we yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now uh, look, well, let's look ahead to some of the highlights of, of this week's route then I mean you were showing some of the profiles earlier Tony on your wonderful uh, tablet that you've got with you and I mean some of the stages already in the first few days of racing look yeah. pretty bl- brutal don't they what, what stands out for you both well tomorrow <laughs> you look at tomorrow's stage it's pan flat for the first 20 kilometres um, and then it just goes uphill up to you know 1400 metres and the rest of the stage is just up and down and uh, you know you just look at it and it's just you're just going to people that have lost 13 and a half minutes today which is the majority of the field are going to look at that dreading what's going to happen tomorrow and you're going to get people doing full on track warm ups before the start yeah and I mean we um, the the Tour de France we talked about those long stages those 235s that people said were boring and stuff I mean I don't think there's a stage in the Volta that's longer than 180 there might be a 200 in there somewhere but very rarely do they go beyond 200 kilometers. They're normally 140, 150, 160, up to 180, but, you know, hilly. So, you know, and they tend to start about 1, 130, a lot of Spanish time. So they all like a line in the morning. They tend to start a lot later between 1, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in some cases if they're short stages. So you're starting at the hottest time of the day in Spain and it could be 38, 39 degrees somewhere in the middle of Spain and you're going straight up a climb at the start. People don't want to warm up, you know, on a turbo static at 38 degrees. You stay in the air-conditioned bus as long as possible and just suffer. And it's tough. That's what the vault is about. And if you're not used to those conditions or maybe heat acclimatized, and you know, it, it can it can get you down. And, and 
this is all, you know, we talked about these GC guys. They've all got this to contend with as well. Simon Yates from Berry, you know, <laughs> going to go up a hill at 39 degrees and obviously lives in Andorra and trains. But obviously if they've not had a couple of warm months training or heat acclimatised, you know, that, that has a massive impact on the performance. And even that starting at two or three in the afternoon, mm. a lot of the European guys aren't accustomed to that. You, you know, your body clock likes to get up, bang. You go out training at half nine yeah. in the morning. You want to be racing at half nine, ten o'clock in the morning as well. You're leaving it till two or three in the afternoon. You can start getting tired again. You know, you've woken up, you've had mm. your meal, you've maybe gone back, had a couple of hours kip again, had, had your lunch, and yeah. all of a sudden you, you, you're snoozing on the bus. And yeah, not, and the Spanish culture as well. I mean, you turn up at the hotels at seven o'clock at night, 7.30, go and get your massage, dinner will be 9.30, 10 o'clock, and the Spanish teams haven't eaten dinner yet, even when you're sat there at 9.30 at the dinner table. They like to go, to go about half ten and then they all sit, you know, that, that's the Spanish culture. They eat quite late in the day, we'll get up later, so you don't have to get up till half nine, ten o'clock most mornings on the Vuelta. Nine times out of ten, which is quite good with the Vuelta, you're staying in the town that the stage starts. You haven't got far to go, so you don't have to get up till ten o'clock some mornings. The stage don't start till two o'clock, so you don't have to eat till half ten, eleven. You know, and it's just, it's a lot more sort of relaxed atmosphere at the Vuelta late finishes late nights uh, late starts in the afternoons and it's everything's just pushed back we spoke about a bit about the, the Tour de France there was no time to do anything you're up at eight in the morning late to bed 11 12 o'clock and just there was no time to sit around there's, the Vuelta's quite good for there's a lots of periods of laying around doing nothing which is, is great if you're a rider and, and completely different contrast to the Tour de France. A couple of mountain finishes as well in the first week, stage four, 12k of climbing to get to the top. Uh, also stage nine, uphill finish at La Covertier. Looks very testing. You've ridden that, of course, Have I? Brad. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 2011. <laughs> 2011 yeah, right. um, when Dan Martin won. Oh, that one. Yeah, that's that a one. tough one. Yeah. yeah, I seem to remember that just getting really exposed towards the top. And I remember one of our Spanish mechanics at the time was with us that knew that finish and said, over the top, it could split in the crosswinds. That's exactly what happened. Me and Chris, just in the small group that we were in, rode through and off in an echelon and, and split the group. And um, so, so you know, very, again, very rare that you get a crosswind at the top of a mountain in something like the Tour de France and that. But with the Vuelta, the nature of the terrain and, and this, that and the other, it's it's a very, very unique race. And it, and it it creates moments like that where you, that you wouldn't expect or get in any other race. But stage four, like you said, 135k out to the finish at 162. It climbs a thousand meters, and the last 7k, you know, is horrendous. There's there's massively steep ramps of 15, 18 percent, and you know this is stage four of a Grand Tour when you've got guys that are already 13 and a half minutes down. Do you think we're going to see already after four, five, six stages a, a very clear picture of even the top yeah. three to five riders? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think historically we see that with the Volta. Um, and you, you're going to see people going home. You're going to see, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Richie yeah. suddenly thinks to himself, I'm 13 and a half minutes down now. I've signed my contract for the next two years mm. with Trek. I've got nothing to gain by being here. Nothing at all. No. And obviously there's an opportunity for him at the Worlds or the Hilly Worlds. Don't know if he's going to make the Australian squad or not. But especially guys like him, you know, just had a baby this year. And so you just never know what state of mind these people are in and people halfway around Spain in the middle of nowhere thinking, what am I doing here? Looking at the first week as well, in fact, the tour in general, why would you go to it as a sprinter given what we've been looking at? It just looks so, so tough. Is there any crumb of comfort for them in the first seven days of racing, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, Sagan's here, isn't he? Um, 
13 and a half minutes yeah down. but I mean he's you know he had a successful tour aside from the crash towards the end and I don't know if the world's he's already said the world's isn't for him we'd never discount him from the world's be stupid not to but um he's another one just loves racing his bike doesn't he I mean he just loves you know being there around his team and Obviously, we saw the news during the tour that he was getting divorced and, you know, maybe this is a, an opportunity to take his mind away from that. We just don't know um, the circumstances to why he's riding, but um, he's there and you wouldn't put him past him to win a stage at some point in the race. So, I mean, the only other sprinters that stand out, you've got Viviani, who's had a stellar year. Yeah, um, and loves racing as well. I mean, he's, yeah. you saw him, he's a, he was on the track only a couple of weeks ago in the Omnium Champs at the Euros. So, you know, he again, someone who can climb potentially win a stage at some point. Buhani's in the race. I was just going to say Buhani. Don't know about him. Never know with him, do we? (laughs) Well, stages three, six and eight are all apparently with the sprinters in mind, but they're pretty bumpy, aren't they? Mm. It must be incredibly tough. It must be a very different tour to the Giro 2, the Tour de France for a sprinter. If stage three is for the sprinters, (laughs) best of luck on that one. I mean, you know, straight out the gate, 20k in, you've got a massive climb up to, you know, a thousand metres from sea level. So the sprinters are going to have a long day if they're going to get back. Uh, it's it's 182k stage, um, and there's a lot of climbing in the middle there. So yeah. good good luck to the sprinters if they're going to get back up for that. <laughs> um, let's talk about Spain in general and about things like the heat and the wind. I mean, it's it's as you said as well. The the uh, the, the layout, the geography is pretty extreme, isn't it? Mm. It must be incredibly tough. Yeah, to I mean, particularly inland. Once you get inland in Spain, it's quite desolate. I mean, there's not a lot there. You know, you can go a long periods between towns, and it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very, yeah. As we see on the, I mean, it's, there's not much going on for the commentators when you're watching it on telly at times. Particularly, it always seems to be on a what we'd call a motorway or a highway or of some sort, and they're the only ra- roads that kind of traverse Spain in all different directions. You know, until so it's either it's real rugged, hardly any trees. So again, it's just the heat's pounding down on the riders, and it suits certain people. You know, it suits the Colombians, the Spanish that are used to that. Um, it's just desert, isn't it? It is, In yeah. It's just desert. Um, so there's nothing like it, really. It has the lowest profile of the three Grand Tours. How would you both make it more appealing? Is there anything you could you could do as an organiser to get people more excited? Uh, about the I mean, there's been talk of shortening it to two weeks. You'd probably end up with the same result. The way it's been, you could make it five days, it'd probably be the same result at the moment. Um, it used to be two weeks back in the 60s and early 70s. Um, at the end of the day, it's a desert. You can't do much about that. And no. you can't you can't just go to the seaside towns because you're not going to you're not going to be able to do the tour of spain mm. you'll have massive transfers in there and it is a big country as well yeah. it's a very big country they don't tend to start in other countries oh I mean, it started a few years ago in holland and stuff but obviously the tour moves around a bit and gives a bit more interest to it but spain they very you know they like to keep it in their in their territory and they've got so much land that they can cover as well but there's other certain parts that they can't go as well and i forget the last time it went into catalonia um, or the Basque country, and mm. there's certain it's very um, tribal in different areas as well as to the supporters and that. I mean, I remember getting up into the Basque country areas, you know, Pamplona and all that, and just the support up there is incredible, particularly around with the Anglerou and climbs like that that they historically use. So, I mean, bear in mind as well, all the TV coverage is for the last two, two and a half hours 
we don't have the Tour de France no. coverage where we're doing all day because there's so much of it that's just in a desert and there's there's nobody watching. We saw in the Bink Bank Tour they introduced that golden kilometer, which actually really enlivened the race and they affected the the final result. It's a nice little thing to put mm. into it, but the Grand Tours like to be traditional. Mm. They like to just stick to their roots and not put things yeah. like that in. And we tend not to have all the other stuff that goes around the Tour de France so we don't have all the people on the ground getting social stuff like Matt Stevens does at the Tour and so all these little things how was yesterday's stage all these little sort of flash interviews with people we don't really get that much at the Vuelta we just tend to be watching it as it is the race as as we used to watch the Tour de France so I think in recent years that the way it's televised the Tour de France has, has made it much more interactive to the to the viewer and we don't tend to get that so much with the Vuelta. Um, so it makes it a bit more of a bore watching it until we get to the final. Uh, let me ask you both for a prediction then. Who's going to win the Vuelta this year? I'm going to stick my neck on the line and I'll probably get shot down in the next couple of weeks. But I think Valverde could win it. I really do. Uh, with Kwiatowski on the podium somewhere, second or third, don't know where. Couldn't, couldn't pick a third person for the podium at this stage. Tony, what about you? Kierkowski for me. Uh, just having seen him at the Tour of Poland, Who's he? how he came out the oh, Tour. Oh, Kwiatowski. <laughs> Says the pronunciation expert next to me. Uh, yeah, he seeing what he did at the Tour of Poland, just certain that, you know, he, he rode so well at the Tour of Poland with limited team support. I just think he's going to step up here. Uh, well, that's all from this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Thank you, Tony. Thank, Thank you very you. much indeed. You're welcome. Uh, this has been a Muddy Knees media production for Eurosport. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Visit Eurosport.com and the Eurosport app for an unrivaled welter experience. Watch live, uninterrupted video streams of the entire race with a host of extra features. There's up-to-the-minute live blogging and analysis from Felix Lowe and in-depth breakdowns of the biggest stages and how the race was won. Plus, comprehensive news, race clips and the best of Eurosport's live coverage. Eurosport.com is the only place you need to be throughout the Vuelta. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.